Hey, Jay, is Phantom X still three people? No. Oh, good. Now it's getting ridiculous. Now he's Professor Xavier. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 264 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to something of a milestone, albeit a somewhat behind-the-scenes milestone. That's right, this is our 100th episode with our amazing, amazing producer, Matt Hunter. I can't believe it's been 100 episodes already. It doesn't seem like that long ago. Right, just yesterday it was Inferno. (laughs) It's still Inferno. But yes, Matt, thank you so much for being a part of this show for so long, for contributing so much to what Jane Miles explained the X-Men sounds like, and to the fact that it is much more listenable than it would be if we just gave everyone the raw audio. I feel like we would have about zero listeners if we tried to do that. You are super amazing. Thank you again for, yeah, for making us sound good, for being patient with our, our foibles and hijinks, for awesome communication and being an awesome producer, and most of all, just a pleasure to work with. Yes, all of those things. So, uh, I guess here is that milestone episode. I feel like we should have covered something more significant for it, but it's just sort of an okay Excalibur arc. I like this arc. I actually really like this story, and it might be because I'm profoundly biased towards robots, but... Honestly, I think I think if you're going to have a 100th episode, it may not be monumental, it may not have a huge punch, but it's got a lot of heart. You know, that's true. And uh, Jay, I'm actually really excited to to talk about this with you because it's, it's not often that you enjoy a story more than I do. And so this is going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited about being convinced. Be kind to robots. That's good advice in general, because otherwise, robot uprising. No, just be kind to robots. You you need to have you you don't need to have like potential mortal danger as the primary justification for being decent to other sentient creatures or potentially sentient creatures. No, no, that's that's very true as well. Be kind to robots. Be kind to everything. Dude, when I worked at the comic shop, I said thank you to our Roomba every night. I'm sure it appreciated it. I'm not. I don't think it really did. I mean, it's a Roomba, but You know, it seemed like a good thing to do. It seemed like the right thing to do. Well, as we approach the Roomba Covenant, the next big X-Men crossover, maybe we should give a little bit of background before we dive into this part of that prelude. Well, they're basically automatic vacuum cleaners. They're round, so they have some trouble with corners, and you you take them off their base, you press start, and they go around. And if it's this one, they get kind of tired out and, and confused. Um, by like the edge of a carpet or just by the passage of time and, and eventually lose charge before getting back to their base. So you have to find them and put them back manually in the morning. But they're supposed to actually find their bases on their own. Man, I can't believe those things killed so many X-Men. What? Anyway, we're talking about Excalibur this time around, but a lot of the background information isn't particularly Excalibur related. As for who Excalibur is, well, they're Britain's premier superhero team, and they're in this arc, technically. They're also undergoing or have recently undergone kind of massive restructuring to make them more central to and more closely affiliated with the main X lineup. So we still have Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, Megan, and Captain Britain's bombastic new incarnation, Britannic. 
along with their newest magical recruit, Day Tripper, aka Amanda Sefton, aka Jemaine Sardos, aka Nightcrawler's sister, girlfriend, something. It's complicated. Her codename should be It's Complicated. Oh man, that would be like almost every X-Man's codename. So as far as stuff that is more relevant to this arc, let's talk about where Excalibur's based out of. Well, these days Excalibur is working from Muir Isle. That's the island research laboratory and possibly also hospital uh, run by mutant genetics expert, or expert in mutant genetics rather, Moira McTaggart. Moira has of late been working night and day to find a cure for the legacy virus, the mutant targeting AIDS allegory unleashed by the villainous Strife when Strife died. Strife also left behind some of his former allies, including Zero, a teleporting android with a big zero on its face, who was beginning to develop a lot more personality than the no personality he had had before. At the end of the last arc of Excalibur, Zero employed some ambiguous technology to free an imprisoned member of the evil techno-organic collective entity, the Phalanx. And that being turned out to be a very on-point recreation of deceased New Mutant and Shadowcat's best friend, Doug Ramsey. So that's a whole thing, and that's going to factor in pretty heavily to where we go from here in Excalibur. So this story is called The Duglock Chronicle, The Duglock Chronicles, which is, I think, a little bit ambitious as a title for a three-issue arc. Yeah, it's sort of the Duglock appetizer, or the Duglock sampler, or maybe just the Duglock free sample, except it wasn't free because it was in a comic that you paid for. But still, you get the point. The Duglock chapter, perhaps. Anyway, the first issue of that arc, Excalibur 78, is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Chris Cooper, penciled by John Royal, inked by Harry Candelario, and colored by Chris Mathis. And within its pages, Zero is having a really rough time, as I feel like one ends up having if one has been working for Strife. But Zero in particular is struggling with the recent onset of feelings and self-awareness. It's really interesting to me that we have Zero as such a focal character to this arc, because when Zero first appeared back in, I believe, the last few issues of New Mutants, when Rob Liefeld took over, or maybe it was just when Strife showed up. Anyway, it was toward the end of New Mutants. Zero was mainly defined by, well, his name. He was a nothing. He was a silent robot that just did whatever Strife wanted, which was mostly teleporting the MLF around and listening to Strife monologue. And now he's probably the former member of the MLF who has the most personality. I mean, Strife has a lot of personality, Miles. Well, I mean, not anymore. Although, based on the many, many post-death plans Strife left, I guess you could argue that he totally still does. Oh my god, he's such an asshole. That's that's gonna figure into this, too. But Zero, for now, is, is having the experience that sufficiently advanced AIs have in the Marvel Universe, and that he is, he is evolving, and he is... He has sort of set out a signal. He, it was answered by someone from from the phalanx whom zero was able to free from it we found out recently in the pages of x-men that that doug ramsey or some remainder of doug ramsey's consciousness or something that took its form had been kind of rebelling against the phalanx already and it looks like you know that rebellion has been made manifest and final and zero was able to actually sever that link either way he's running around with a dude whose former phalanx whose techno-organic 
um, and basically looks like Warlock's Douglock form. Yeah, it's like if Doug Ramsey, as drawn by Alan Davis, still in his New Mutants uniform, well, not quite, we'll get to that, uh, just sort of got covered in yellow and black techno stuff. Now, it was implied in Uncanny X-Men that this was just a computer recreation of Doug. And he definitely acts like he's just an algorithm, but Zero is convinced that there's something special about this kid. Yeah, Zero says that's because of the stock from which this version of Doug was derived. I guess Zero had a lot of respect for Doug Ramsey, as well he should have. Now, Zero's having some trouble getting his points across to to this Doug. Um, and and the juxtaposition of Zero's sort of sudden poetic idealism versus Doug's very warlock-style literalism is is really charming. So so Zero, you know, gesturing wildly opines. The answers we seek are not in this cave, but somewhere out there. Please specify location parameters. Out where? There are trillions of organisms merely within the confines of the forest. From microscopic life forms that exist only for seconds, to spruce trees with a biomass measured in tons and a lifespan measured in centuries. We are but two beings among countless others. Precisely. It is time we set out to find our place among them, and thereby understand our purpose in a broader context. You know, I'd really like to think that somewhere in the multiverse, the story turned into a musical at this point. And I would say it wouldn't really work well as a musical with everybody talking like a robot, but... Auto-tune. Let's just auto-tune Zero and Douglock. It would be delightful. Oh shit, you're entirely right. Now I wish I'd had time to write songs for this episode. Auto-tune the phalanx. Make it happen. Meanwhile, in, in non-robot news, Excalibur's plane is hovering nearby because, you see, Britannic had a feeling. And as a reminder, Britannic is the version of Captain Britain that came back out of the time stream after he'd been stuck there for a while. He's notable for having a bright red onesie with random lines all over it, a righteous mullet, talking and acting kind of like a boring version of the Tick, and having his new identity almost not explored at all. Yeah, um, and he doesn't know what, what this feeling is or why he's having it, but he does know that it concerns every single person on the planet. I, I don't know, I just, I feel like I should always be declamatory when I'm talking about Britannic. I think you probably should. Or you could be like Megan, who just talks all mystically and fairy-like and is very supportive and has almost no identity of her own anymore now that Brian's back. These are seriously the worst versions of both Brian and Megan. Like, I love Britannic's costume, and I like nothing else about their current incarnations. I'm still really, really upset that he doesn't try to eat inanimate objects. Maybe he does off-panel. Like just take bites out of things to try to figure out how to interact with them. Well, I mean, spoiler, they show up to save the day when there's a big fight later that Zero and Douglock get into. Maybe it's not that they actually navigated there. Maybe it's that Brian just ate part of the control panel and the ship just sort of drifted in that direction. No, because we get Kitty Pride complaint speech balloons, and I'm pretty sure she'd cover that. Oh, yeah, that's, that's probably true. Now... Among the people who are potentially impacted by this momentous thing that Captain Britain is, is ambiguously feeling um, are presumably the adorable and commercial perfect family of four-plus stuffed bunny setting up to camp in the woods. And then at this point, when they appear, the lettering changes, and it's very strange and I don't like it one bit. 
huh, I, I didn't really notice that. I guess I should pay more attention to lettering. Yeah, it's a totally different font for like half the issue. Weird. Maybe it's their camp font. Maybe like, you know, their regular font is too formal and you have to wash it regularly, but they're at a campsite. So they just use their like rustic font that's really durable, but it gets kind of messed up easily, but that's okay because it's supposed to look that way. It, it, no. Well, young Moppet Courtney heads off to the woods to pee and comes face to face with Zero. And Zero responds to this situation by silently picking her up, putting her down, handing her her dropped bunny, and heading back off. I really love the narration for this part, though. This was actually one of my favorite little scenes in the arc. Awe gives way to curiosity about a creature so wondrous and rare, which, it turns out, is exactly what Courtney was feeling, too. It's a clever reversal, because, you know, Zero is so impressed by this unrealistically adorable little girl and her unrealistically adorable stuffed bunny. Something I appreciate about the stuffed bunny in terms of realism is that it does get increasingly fucked up over the course of this story. There are a lot of explosions. Yeah, and they leave marks. Mm -hmm. That said, I do have some advice for our robot who's trying to be a person. So, Zero, I know you don't know much about mammals, but I'm just going to say... If somebody is, like, heading off to use the bathroom right then, you probably don't want to lift them up. There's a good chance it won't go well. Yeah, any pet owner could tell you this, Zero. Yeah, I mean, thankfully it's fine here, but maybe that's just because of the comics code. I don't know. Either way, I'm, I'm grateful. Now, Doug also has concerns about Zero interacting with the kid, but for very different reasons. He doesn't really get why Zero didn't just kill her. I mean, after all, she now has compromising details on their location. And Zero's like, no, dude, you've got to start functioning at a new level. You've got to start questioning your programming and your assumptions. That's why I freed you from the phalanx. And also, the kid that you were based on, the kid that you used to be, was like a really good kid. Let me tell you about him and how he died. Doug has done so many other good things, man. It's true, but that is what we see here. Zero uses, I don't know, technology of some sort to show Doug Locke the way Doug Ramsey died back in Fall of the Mutants protecting Wolfsbane from a gunshot. There's a very subtle detail about Doug, Doug Locke's appearance that changes at this point, and I actually didn't catch it my first time reading through. I had to go back for it. Um, and that is that he's he's just sort of generically techno-organic yellow and black, um, sort of scribbly before this point. But once he's seen the memory, he's wearing the New Mutants costume. Yeah, like it's clearly part of his body. It's not like spandex over techno-organic, but it's in that exact pattern. And I appreciate that Doug's personality doesn't change. He's still like, I don't know, Zero, I'm pretty sure I'm just a robot, but some part of him clearly did take something from that. Also, I gotta say, John Royal, the fill-in artist for this issue, although it's kind of mostly fill-in artists in Excalibur these days, he does a pretty good Brett Blevins impersonation when he draws the flashback scene of Doug getting killed. He's even got Wolfsbane with that very specific giant Wolverine haircut she used to have in her wolf hybrid form that brett blevins would draw oh it's pretty great also well, i mean in in a traumatic death of favorite character value of great i'm just saying i already mourned doug like at this point i'm much more at peace with the whole thing so i can just look at you know really well-drawn versions of him dying again and just go hey that's a well-drawn version i've already cried all my tears Aside from the costume, not a lot changes for Doug. He's still really struggling with this. And it turns out he was, well, he wasn't exactly right about what Zero should do, but he was right about the risk because Strife's droids show up and attack the family. 
And we've seen these droids before. Like, apparently, Strife had all of these contingencies in place if he ever died. Like, a lot of contingencies. And many of those contingencies were killer robots who would hunt down anybody who was connected to him just so Strife could get the last laugh. Yeah, no, we're going to get to some more of those contingencies this this episode. And they are... They're so petty, but my favorite thing about his droids is they really look like he bought them at Radio Shack and then kind of tricked them out. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Even the good robot us's from Bill and Ted's bogus journey are more exciting than these things. They're so generic. Does Radio Shack still exist? Children, do you know what Radio Shack is? In in, in days of yore, Radio Shack was where you went for wires and transistors and small motors and, and, you know, killer droids and things like that. Or nice droids. Again, the good robot us is from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, which is the superior Bill and Ted movie, by the way, both because it's more fun and because it's less uncomfortably homophobic. Yeah, yeah, that's a problem. Although there's still the third one that, 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 is, that is in the works, so the best may be yet to come. I'm really excited about it. It looks like it could be really, really good or really terrible, but I'm really excited. I really appreciate how cheerfully weird Keanu Reeves is these days. I know. Speaking of, I finally saw the first John Wick movie. I still have to see two and three, but the first one was a really well-done action movie. Right? Huh. So good. So good. Anyway, we very much digress, because right now, John Wick isn't shooting anybody, but killer droids are shooting people, or at least shooting at them. Uh, they do not manage to shoot anyone, because Zero and Doug rush to the rescue, and Excalibur also rushes to the rescue, at which point Kitty kind of recognizes Doug, but there's not really time for them to have a moment, because Zero explodes a lot of drones, and then teleports Excalibur, Ramsey, and the family to, well, please assume scare quotes when I say safety. That brings us to Excalibur number 79, Twisted Logic. Plotted once again by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Chris Cooper, penciled by Ken Lashley, inked by Harry Candelario and Randy Elliott, and colored by Chris Mathis. And the cover here is a perfectly fine cover. It's, you know, like a sort of action-y scene of Doug being all robot and stuff. But it's just a very slightly modified version of one of the interior panels. Like, it's the same thing that's being drawn, but slightly shifted. Like, it was just drawn a second time. Jay, you know more about the mechanics of building comics than I do. What do you think is going on here? Ooh, what I think is going on is tight deadline. That's going to be the answer like nine out of ten times. Well, right. I could see that if they just reused the panel from the inside, but it's clearly a different version of the exact same thing. Yeah, the layout's already there, though. It could also be that the panel inside was revised or that they looked at the panel and went, wow, this would make a cool cover. I mean, the the options are myriad. Okay. It's, not a, it's not a terrible cover. Like, I, I, I kind of get using it. Yeah, it's fine. It's just weird. Well, anyway, Jay, like you were saying, Zero has teleported everybody away into one of Strife's old bases, which is full of giant robots, like on the ceilings and walls and stuff, and everybody freaks out. But I do appreciate that before everybody freaks out, Excalibur takes time to pose heroically and symmetrically around Zero. I feel like you should just enter every room that way if you're a superhero. Did you notice that the, the nameless mother's hair changed color? Uh, I, I didn't, no. I guess she was just yeah. that generic. Yeah, no, it went from uh, red to blonde between issues. So I realized this family never gets a last name. Like, we get some first names, nope. like we know Courtney. I've just been calling them the Campersons. And I gotta say, Courtney Camperson is actually a really pleasing name to say. You should try it. Courtney Camperson? Yeah, I can live with that. Sort of sitcom-y, sort of satisfying. 
Man, it it what it sounds like very much is a name pulled out of Bojack Horseman, which I know you still haven't seen, but Okay, well, further incentive to do so, albeit a somewhat strange incentive. You'd love it. It's incredibly bleak. Hooray! So, anyway, Ken Lashley, as you heard in the credits, is back for this issue, and that means that Britannic has as much hair as I do, but, like, way more gigantic and comic booky. and Megan's butt is lovingly focused upon whenever possible. I like Ken Lashley overall, but Lashley's got a Lashley. Yeah, he is, again, definitely one of those artists who has gotten much, much better over the last several decades. Mm-hmm. So Britannic, as usual, is very mad about the fact that he's very confused. He's kind of like a giant, punchy infant in that regard. Except an infant would try to eat things. Oh, that's true. Damn it, Brian, you should eat more things and punch fewer things, I guess. I just, I'm just saying, you know, I know I've said it before, I will say it again, I would tolerate Britannic so much better if he occasionally tried to eat things that weren't food. Yeah, Marvel of the 90s, get on it. Retroactively. Please. I feel like we should be polite when we ask for these things. So, Britannic knows that he has to help Zero. His funny feeling inside, which hopefully is not like a mutant fetus like it was for Haven, uh, has told him that much. But he says he's going to wring the why of it from Zero's broken body. Like, that's not how you help people, Brian. You don't break them until you know why you're supposed to be helping them. Yeah, um, fortunately, Megan breaks in. Her elemental senses, which basically are the equivalent of magnetism, as far as I can tell, in terms of their their remarkable versatility, are telling her that they're below the Pentagon. Her elemental senses have told her that they're below the Pentagon? Well, because, you know, there's the the, the basic mystical elements, earth, air, fire, water, and military-industrial complex. Oh, good point, good point. So, elemental senses, below the Pentagon. I can't tell if that's stupidly awesome or just stupidly stupid. Oh, it's stupidly stupid. But then, so is war. Mmm, words to grow on. Now, Shadowcat is pretty frustrated for her own reasons. She's really mad that her dead best friend is showing up here and just acting like a robot, you know, despite even wearing a new mutant's uniform in his own techno-organic way. You bet I'm stressed, Buster. Stressed because it's obvious you're not Doug Ramsey, and I won't allow a cold, unliving thing to make a mockery of my dead friend. Do you hear? And he hears, but he doesn't get it, because he responds as still being a logic-y robot jerk. And so she just phases her hand through his chest, which, as we know, is not so hot for machines, and calls him a... Misbegotten son of a microwave. So the thing we were talking about a couple episodes ago, about how Kitty is largely defined in the way she reacts to things uh, in terms of anger, yeah, that. But also kind of, fair enough, man. I'd be pretty messed up, too. I mean... All of the humans here are kind of dicks about robots. I guess that's not true, actually. Captain Britain and Kitty are kind of dicks about robots. Everyone else is pretty chill, and Courtney has decided Zero is her best friend, which is really legitimately adorable. So, here's the thing about Doug Locke being in this book. Like, clearly, he's in Excalibur, as opposed to another X book, because of his history with Kitty Pride. You know, they used to be really, really tight back in the day. When he was introduced as a supporting character, it was as her friend. But... I kind of have to wonder if he would have been better in X-Force or X-Factor. I mean, X-Force has a number of his former teammates on it. After all, it's the team that used to be the New Mutants. And X-Factor has Wolfsbane, who was probably the person he was closest to in all of his living tenure and the person he died saving. So I don't know. What do you think? So I thought about that. And my first thought was, well, X-Factor because Rain. 
But then I started thinking about it and I realized that X Factor works for the government. And given the phalanx in that situation, he probably wouldn't land on the team. He'd probably land somewhere locked up in the basement of the Pentagon. Fair enough. And maybe he wouldn't even make it far enough into X-Force to say hi before getting blown up by giant, giant guns. Yeah, X-Force is so heavily militarized. I mean, I think... I think that's that's the team I think he would have it would have made for an interesting story. But on the other hand, part of what Douglock's arc is about, especially here, is him learning to not just look at things in pragmatic and violent terms. And I don't know that X-Force would have been the place to learn that particular lesson. Although Richter could have told him to um, point his fingers in the shape of a gun differently so that he could just think about things because his mind is his weapon. I actually would have loved to have seen Warlock and Shatterstar become friends. Oh, man. Yeah, that would be delightful. Have they interacted? Because, I mean, you know, Warlock's been back for a while in various ways, shapes, and forms, and I'd imagine those two must have shared some scenery at some point. Mm, not much. Ah, well, that's unfortunate. It, it really is. So Britannic, Megan, and Zero try to figure out what's up, but all they figure out is that Zero is genuinely frustrated. And Zero is so excited to be genuinely frustrated because he had a feeling. He's truly sentient. He's he's so pleased by this. And that makes me wonder, so like, is that what defines us as people? Is that what makes us sentient? Specifically frustration? Honestly, I do kind of feel like frustration is a pretty good indicator of sentience, or at least of some degree of awareness. I mean, that makes some sense. Like, you have desires or goals, and they are thwarted, so you're aware of the conceptual thing you want. You're aware of the reality in which you're not getting it. Although, then again, I think about our cat, and she's just frustrated all the time when she's not being fed or petted, and I don't know that I'd call her sentient. Delightful, but maybe not sentient. Yeah, no, I don't think—I I think it's maybe what, what, what indicates awareness or feelings. I don't think it's necessarily what indicates sentience or humanity. So what you're saying is that Zero might just be a whiny cat. At this point, there's a loudspeakery thing that goes through the base explaining that, okay, Zero is now sentient, congratulations Zero, but Strife specifically had a plan such that if Zero was ever sentient and ever in this base, then everything would start exploding. And so that's what happens. Like, how many eventualities do you think Strife came up with? Did he just have, like, binders upon binders upon binders of here's how I can fuck over my former friends if this very specific thing happens? No, that's Cameron Hodge. Oh, okay. Yeah, with Strife, it was probably in, I don't know, like, Brandon Nightmare Before Christmas notebooks that he got from Hot Topic or something. Oh, unquestionably. The thing is, this is not the the acme of, of Strife's petty forethought. It's gonna get worse. And part of what's gonna bring it to, to that level of worse is Zero's sudden realization as the self-destructs go off, which is that he knows how to cure the legacy virus, or at least the solution, the cure for the legacy virus, is trapped somewhere within his mind. Right near all the exploding robots. And that brings us to Excalibur number 80, Out of Time. This is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Chris Cooper, penciled by Amanda Connor, inked by Harry Candelario and Keith Champagne and Randy Elliott, and colored by Chris Mathis. Hey, Amanda Connor, I really like her art. Right? And she does a pretty good job here, too. Yeah, she was known for doing a lot of, uh, was it Harley Quinn and also Power Girl? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, she's done a, she's done fairly long runs on both of those. I associate her mostly with DC, so it's kind of cool seeing uh, getting to see her do, do some more Marvel stuff right now. I believe she's currently or just wrapped up a bunch of Harley Quinn. Nice. 
This issue opens with everyone trying to beat the clock. Kitty is fishing around blindly inside Zero for his self-destruct mechanism. They find it just in the nick of time. I really love this. I love the idea that if suddenly everything's blowing up because your friend who you just met just became sentient, then clearly the solution is to just root around with your intangibility in his chest cavity until you find out the ex- where the explodo trigger is and can rip it out. That, it doesn't stop the explosions around them, it just means that he won't subsequently explode. So, I guess there's that. I don't know, this is the kind of comic book nonsense that I am totally here for. Uh, despite Kitty having at least turned enough to save Zero for now, Britannic remains weirdly and aggressively anti-robot. Britannic, I'm trying so hard to like you, and seriously, the only good thing that I have to say about you is that your costume is cool, and the only good thing that Jay has to say about you is that you would be cool if you ate inanimate objects. Oh, I didn't say he'd be cool. I said he'd be more tolerable. Oh, well, that's even worse. No, seriously, though, like, this is a tangent, but this frustrates me because we lost Rachel Summers so we could get Britannic. She sacrificed herself so that this guy could come back. And if it was Captain Britain, if it was Brian, like, okay, but it's fucking Britannic. And Rachel would have been so much more interesting in this story, too. And you know what? You give her that cool costume, you have her eat inanimate objects, and then you're missing nothing. She's already got the space-time mullet. See? Britannic, you're good for nothing. Why can't you be more like your sister? I mean, Cable's sister. Cable's alternate dimension. Britannic, you suck is the point. Anyway, while Britannic sucks, Zero has again figured out that he knows something important about the legacy virus, but he doesn't know exactly what, and he can't access the data. And also, everything around him is blowing up, so Captain Britain gets the family out, Kitty and Zero stick around... Kitty Zero and um, Doug stick around and try to find something they can use within Strife's computer, which then blows up in Zero's face. Megan, meanwhile, successfully befriends some lava. Because elemental powers. It's lava under the Pentagon. It's Pentaglava. So, subtly and throughout this, Courtney keeps trying to stay with Zero and go back to check on him. And it's really, really, really sweet. Although, ultimately, um, yeah, his 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 face gets blown up, and she is she's very, very worried about this. Um, and and Zero, for his part, has replaced having a face with having an existential crisis. I could never be your friend, child. I am only a machine. I understand that now. Damn, bro! What brought that on? Seriously, lots of superheroes and supervillains don't have faces. It's the Marvel Universe, and Maverick and Kyle Rayner from DC don't have noses, and also Logan didn't have a nose that one time that he devolved. But the point is, like, I feel like this is not a good reason to have an existential crisis. Like, yeah, there's a lot for Zero to worry about. He was created by a terrible person, and maybe he can never fully get past that because all these triggers keep happening. But not having a face? Whatevs, dude. The face thing, it turns out, is not actually the source of his crisis. He has realized just how completely this situation is rigged. And he tells everyone else to go. He has to stay so he can redirect the blast sequence so that it won't take out about seven square miles of the surface. No, more than that, actually. It's a seven-mile radius of the surface. And, man, Courtney has a super sad, super sweet goodbye with him. Thank you for helping us. I love you and I hope your face gets better, because you're a nice person. Everyone gets out safely, but one person goes back. 
In the meantime, Zero gets an unexpected and very lengthy recorded message from Strife. If you're hearing this message, it means I am dead. My legacy is sweeping the world. And your inevitable, pitiful attempt at sentient awareness has led you to a selfless act that at moments will destroy you. So here's a little going away present. As of this moment, I'm removing the last programming blocks to your sentience. I'm granting you full awareness, plus full access to the data that might eventually have led to a cure for the virus, if only you had more time. Congratulations, you're human. For the next eight seconds. Oh, and that desolation you're feeling right about now, Zero, enjoy it. That's what being human is all about. Your life has been a waste, Zero. I've seen to that and no one can change it. No one will bear witness as your circuits fuse and turn to slag. No one will mourn. No one will remember. No one. Strife, you utter bag of dicks. Utter bag of dicks, yes, but also wrong. Because Douglock went back. Yeah, Douglock, who is all about we have to be pragmatic, we have to preserve ourselves. He has apparently learned something over the last couple of issues full of exploding robots and cute Camperson girls, which is, you also gotta stand by your friends. Sometimes that's worth the risk. And so the amazing thing about this horrible, horrible soliloquy from Strife is that as it's playing, Douglock is heading back down, and Zero is grabbing him and uploading the data to him and Douglock and then pushing him out and Douglock is stopping to look back and see Zero one last time. And it's both really triumphant and really, really heartbreaking. And I, I love, I love this story. I think it's a really good story. I don't think it's, it's necessarily the epic that the title makes it out to be, but I think it's, it's solid as hell. It does have some really good robot character work, yeah. And in this specific issue, and especially in this specific scene, I have to give Amanda Connor some major credit for that. She is great at just taking simplified, stylized faces of the sort you kind of have to have if you're drawing somebody with robot crap all over them and making them very expressive. Oh yeah, she is fantastic here. I'm not going to say I don't think anyone else could have done this scene, but I don't know that anyone else who was working on this book at the time could have. So, yeah, Douglock now has data on how, to, on how to cure the legacy virus from the sacrificed Zero. This will change nothing, actually. This plot line is going to go nowhere. Yeah, he also can't get to the data yet, but he's got it. It's there somewhere. Now, while all of this is going down, there is some much quieter drama playing out on Muir Island where Maura McTaggart and Rory Campbell are both working around and against the clock, trying to make some headway against the legacy virus. And they are exhausted and they are dejected. They have made, like, no progress. But here comes a new challenger, or I guess a new couch co-op multiplayer partner? Anyway, the point is, Professor Xavier, you remember how he turned the X-Mansion over to Beast? That's because he wanted to come here to help with the legacy virus full-time. I do like that his first helpful act is that he literally shows up bringing coffee. Like, 
that's that is a good choice at that point. And he is, yeah, he's he's really here to help. He is upbeat. He's also flirty. And I really like his and Moira's dynamic. Like they really manage to sell affectionate exes here in ways that that tend to be hit and miss for these two characters. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, Xavier and Moira, they have a wonderful dynamic, and we get to see it surprisingly little. Like, usually it's just them talking around a situation, around whatever the latest conflict is, whether it's between them or supervillains or a virus or whatever. But here we actually get them as two people. Yeah, it's a little like seeing your parents flirting. Are they my parents? No. Well, that's probably for the best, because also they never had a kid together. Everyone gets that wrong. Proteus and, Leg- and Legion each had different other parents. I mean, in the 616, they're the same person in a lot of universes. Anyway, they are flirty, yes, but Moira's still really sad as they look at the list of casualties, as she realizes that, hey, maybe multiple man, Jamie Madrox was the lucky one because he was killed before the virus could painfully kill him. Xavier has a downer of a response. Is this what we've come to, Moira? Wishing our friends the least painful death possible? Oh, the mopey 90s. And they reminisce about simpler, easier times, about being young and innocent, about making out on a public beach to prove that mutants and humans could coexist. But I love this because in this flashback... We then have some, like, disapproving, uptight jerks with crew cuts who are giving them the stink eye, and Xavier just uses his powers to make them take off their bathing suits and dance around naked, because Charles Xavier is the hero of the beach. Right? He's not ethical, but once in a long while, he's awesome. Yeah. I just like the idea of those old, like, Charles Atlas ads in comic books being about how, not how you should get the Charles Atlas method to defend yourself against beach bullies, but just how you should develop telepathy and then humiliate people in unethical ways. Honestly, I think it's about as probable as the Charles Atlas method actually working. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably true. But unfortunately, happy memories aside... The present is not great because Mora has come to a shocking conclusion. The legacy virus has mutated, and it is spreading to humans. And this is where the legacy virus takes an interesting turn in its role as a metaphor for AIDS, for HIV, because... Just as in the real world, it eventually became clear to an ignorant public and really ignorant scientists at first that HIV was not limited to gay men, that it could in fact affect everybody. Here we're seeing the same thing happen with the legacy virus. We're seeing it not just be limited to an oppressed population that some people would say, well, they probably deserved it or it's a cure for them. We're seeing that, you know, it's hitting everybody and thus everybody is kind of in the same boat. Now, for those of you who are chewing at your hands and saying, but, but, because you've been reading House of X, we hear you. So I'm not going to spoil that, but I'm going to say that House of X is predicated on a major plot point that very significantly changes the connotations of this particular event. Um... And I'm really interested in seeing how that is going to end up playing out and how and whether those things are reconciled. Because Hickman knows his ex-history. And it's hard to imagine that he would have gone into that without being aware of this. 
Yeah, agreed. And I mean, I don't know. I'm just happy we get to see more and more Taggart in, in House of X, really. Like, she's a wonderful character. I love her as a character here as well. Like, I think this is one of my favorite periods of Moira being Moira. And part of that is just we see her so much more during the Legacy Virus plotline. Usually she's just there for bits and pieces uh, briefly. And with this, she's one of the central figures. Although it is kind of weird that she's one of the central figures in Excalibur. Like, it almost feels like between Zero and Douglock and Xavier and Moira, there's no room for Excalibur in their own book right now. I mean, it's felt like that for a while. At least there's no Micromax. Oh, Micromax. Poor Micromax. Now, at least one charter member of Excalibur returns at this point. Nightcrawler and Amanda come home after their fight with despair, only to get hit with a telepathic blast from Professor X, because he's so upset that he forgot to shield. A Nightcrawler goes in and gives him a really remarkably lovely pep talk in, in another of, of a very solid series of moments of Xavier sort of developing more peer-like relationships with his former students. Yeah, Xavier talks about how Kurt has had to deal his whole life with just being literally, in many cases, attacked and maligned for so obviously being a mutant, and Kurt's stayed relatively optimistic throughout the whole thing. And it's it's so charming. Also, it's just so nice to see Xavier and Nightcrawler actually interacting again. It's been years since they had much time to do so. Now, while Xavier and Nightcrawler are talking, Amanda goes and finds Rory brooding about the future, tells him that she saw him as, see himself as Ahab because she was holding the spell together, and that he needs to get the fuck over himself and just live his life. I like to imagine that off-panel, she gives him a lecture about the way branching timelines work in the Marvel Universe, and is like, look, dude, you turned into Ahab in Earth-811, but this is Earth-616, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna happen. I mean, look at, like, fucking Cable or Rachel or Apocalypse if you want examples of how weird this stuff can get. And we've staved off at least one branch point for 811 already, actually probably at least two, so, you know, just, just become a librarian or something. A librarian with robot arms and legs and a surly sea captain voice. Not yet. I'm just saying. Yar. I mean, he might ha he might have the surly sea captain voice now. We don't know that, but he's got all of his original limbs. I feel like he must not have the surly sea captain voice yet, because if he did, Rachel Summers would have immediately recognized him as Ahab. Maybe he talks like a sexy sea captain now. A sexy sea captain. A smooth sea captain. I mean... Sometimes I have a hard time coming up with sexy thanks. I guess I could add that to the repertoire. I, I, I don't think anyone really wants to hear sexy Rory Campbell, Miles. I mean, I'm pretty sure Scott Lobdell and Chris Cooper did. I don't give a fuck what Scott Lobdell wants to hear. Legit. Anyway, the main thing going on in Muir Island right now is that Moira tells Xavier something that he's missed. The legacy virus is expanding to humans, and she knows that because the DNA sample that showed that came from her. Now, Moira's actually been alluding to this for a little while now, and she's she's pretty thoroughly doomed. It is genuinely tragic. I mean, especially to see the one person working probably hardest in the entire world to cure it, being the person who has contracted it when she wasn't supposed to. I mean, the odds were not on her side, though. She's been mucking around in, in you know, infected tissue for a while. True, true. But, you know, effective tragedy. Now, on a more upbeat note, we have a lot of amazing listeners, and many of those listeners have a lot of questions because the X-Men are really confusing. An anonymous listener, very on theme with viruses, asks on Tumblr, what's the difference between the techno-organic virus and the transmode virus? 
That is a really good question. And I actually had to look this up to make sure I was fully correct, that I fully understood it. So the techno-organic virus, or I should say a techno-organic virus, that's a category. It's a superset, if you will. That superset contains a couple of items. There's the transmode virus that you mentioned. And that is the virus that specifically originates from the technarchy and phalanx intergalactic species. That's most of what we see. That's what infected Limbo and Inferno and all of its denizens. That's what infected Cameron Hodge and made him into the immortal douchebag he now is. Way later, that's what Selene used to resurrect the dead in the ex-Necrotia storyline. And so that has all the hallmarks that we're familiar with, that Warlock does, basically. If you're infected, you can shapeshift. If you're infected, you can also be devoured by the person who infected you as your energy is sucked out, leaving only like a little robot-y husk. Uh, if you survive it, though, yeah, you're a shapeshifter, usually depicted as black and yellow and kind of shapeless. The virus's other big hallmark is it is highly contagious. Again, see Inferno, where Magus showing up very briefly infected, like, all of Limbo. Or see the fact that Doug Ramsey was starting to get infected as he overlapped with Warlock more and more and more. That was never established conclusively. He was starting to get paranoid about getting infected. I feel like eventually it was retroactively established that it had been a thing. I mean, we'll get to more of that with, like, Doug Lock and all that stuff. The other kind of the virus is Apocalypse's version. We thought briefly that he got that from from celestial technology, that he got it from ship. We find out a little bit later that actually Mr. Sinister came up with that version. Maybe he somehow got it from Magus? I don't even know. Sinister does a lot of shit. And Sinister wanted to use that to kill Apocalypse. It didn't work, so then Apocalypse had access to that virus and started using it for his own purposes, like infecting Baby Cable in X-Factor Endgame. This version is less contagious, and it tends to visibly manifest not as that black and yellow shapeless stuff, but more like traditional liquidy robot parts popping out of you. That said, the distinction between the two and whether they are in fact separate has not always been consistent, so that's just the way it is most of the time. And again, there's a decent chance that Hickman's run is going to throw yet another wrench into that. Because it's covering basically everything. Or at least a lot of it. Emblom52 asks on Tumblr, there was a future daughter of Storm and T'Challa that stuck around in the present at the end of a time travel storyline a couple of years ago. Did that ever get followed up on? So, Emblem, I'm guessing that you're talking about Chimera, and she was one of the future X-Men who came back in time way, way back in Wolverine and the X-Men Volume 1, number 36. That would have been in 2013. Right, because that was in the Battle of the Atom storyline that was the 50th anniversary celebration of the X-Men. Yeah, so definitely 2013. That was the same arc that introduced, for instance, uh, Iceman with a wizard beard. Yes. Now, she did stick around in the present, you're right. But her story never got followed up on beyond that. We do know that she went back to the future eventually, and we know that because she shows up in one panel that establishes that she is one of the X-Men on the Shi'ar ship that Dokken blows up in Winter's End. Oh, man. So she comes back just in time to ignominiously die. Yeah, but timelines split, so there may also be a perfectly happy her running around somewhere. It's... it's complicated. What's not complicated is how great our listeners are, because they let us do a listener-supported, fully ad-free podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Take it away, Angry Claremontian narrator. The universe was simple, Brook Forest. Finite. Orderly. Logical. 
You had a place. You had a purpose. Your priorities were concrete, algorithmic. But that was before you were corrupted by the entity known as Derek Chase and found yourself facing a whole new range of dilemmas for which your programming had no answers. Welcome to humanity, Brooke. Hope you survived the experience. And now the microphone goes to the late, great, dearly departed, and ever-vengeful Strife. Dear Diary, my parents may not understand me, but if I'm ever gone, no one will ever be able to forget me. The sentience activated exploding robots and incomplete legacy cure I gave to Zero were only the beginning. I have so many college-ruled notebooks full of elaborate plans, Metallica logos, and that little Stussy S thing. Zack Kraniak made fun of me that time my headblades got caught on the chandelier. And now we'll pay. Zack, I grant you perfect Alan Davis hair, straight from the hair farms of my future timeline. But before you have a chance to appreciate it, that's right. Futuristic techno alopecia! <laughs> Eric Hansen? You told me that my plans for revenge on my parents were too oblique and abstract for anyone to understand. Well, do you know what you'll understand? Being forced by my strife droids to carry around a dozen eggs for a week, but if an egg breaks, one of your bones gets broken too! Because, like, it's, it's symbolism for how you didn't see the proper parallels and... Ah, forget it. The point is... Such is Strife's legacy. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced for the hundredth time this episode by Matt Hunter. Thanks again, Matt. You're great. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported and 100% produced by Matt Hunter. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, star-crossed lovers Professor X and Empress Lalandra have a complicated reunion. And speaking of complicated, Scott and Jean come back from the future and right into a parallel universe. 